the Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. Welcome to Startup Sensations, from both sides of the pond, with Belent Osman and Shelley Bays. Welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations Transatlantic Podcast from both sides of the pond. With me, Berlin Tosman, from just outside London in England. And me, Shelley Bays, from the Sea Ranch, a few hours north of San Francisco, California, in the US. So, Shelley, we've got another fascinating episode today. And, and, and this episode is really about fundraising from uh, an investor's point of view uh, and also from uh, an entrepreneur's point of view. Uh, What's been your perspective on the challenges that founders face when they're trying to raise money? So, Belent, you use a very important word there, challenge. I think you'll hear from most founders that this is the hardest part of the job. Um, I think some of them love pitching their company, but it's stressful. It's, uh, you know, difficult to find the right people. It's not an easy component of the job, but obviously a very, very necessary one. And I think what will be interesting um, about our guest is to learn from the founder side and from the VC side how these challenges can be addressed. So, you know, it's interesting to me, though, you've you've been in that uh, hot seat yourself. So what has it felt like? Yeah, no, a few times I, I've had to raise capital on, on both sides of the pond in, in the UK, but also in Silicon Valley as well. And uh, I, I have to say, I found it the most challenging part of my job as a founder and CEO of a tech startup. I love creating products. I love selling. I love coming up with go-to-market plans and looking after customers and, and all that sort of thing. But actually raising capital, I found to be probably the most stressful part of the job. So it'll be interesting to hear our guest give a perspective on that. And in fact, talking of our guest, uh, his name is Raj Singh and uh, he's British and he lives in Silicon Valley. He's been out there for quite some time. And Shelley, you know Raj. You met him before, haven't you? Yes, I did. I actually met Raj a number of years ago. I can't remember now, maybe eight or nine years ago. And he was uh, a founder. I met him in the capacity of an entrepreneur who was raising funds. So um, that was my first exposure to Raj. He's done many things successfully in his career since then. And um, currently, He's managing partner of JLL Spark, which is a prop tech VC. So it would be fun to hear him compare and contrast what it's like raising funds as an entrepreneur and what it's like as a VC uh, doling out um, that precious cash. So I'm looking forward to hearing from him. Yeah, me too. Raj, welcome to the Startup Sensations podcast. Uh, we're absolutely delighted to have you today, Shelley and I. Uh, how are you today? Very well, thank you, Bill. Pleasure to be here. Just so everyone knows, uh, you're, you're currently in Menlo Park in California, near San Francisco. But as uh, some people may have already picked up, um, you're a Brit. You've been there for <laughs> 20 years, uh, originally from the UK. And uh, you're the managing partner for JLL Spark. Uh, in, in the Bay Area. Can, can you just kick off by just 
tell us a bit about your business and, and what your role specifically is within that business. Yes, happy to. So uh, JLL itself is actually an interesting example of US-UK collaboration. So Jones Lang Wooten was a quite is a very well, was a very well known uh, name in commercial real estate. It's a brokerage firm, and in at the end of the nineties, they merged with a U.S. firm called LaSalle Partners, and that formed Jones Lang LaSalle, which is a Fortune two hundred business based in the U.S. Headquarters are in Chicago, and in twenty eighteen, we started. I say we, I wasn't there yet, uh, a venture capital firm. And the idea is to essentially invest in startups that will help JLL and its clients to do better in the world of commercial real estate. So we're investing in what's commonly known as prop tech, property technology, technology that helps you get more out of your buildings to be more carbon neutral, to enable your employees to work more effectively Anything of that nature is something that we're invested in. And so JLL Spark is now 20 people around the world. And wherever JLL operates, we're interested in finding innovations that we can bring to our clients. Fantastic. So Raj, in looking at your background, you started, I'm going to say my words fairly traditionally in management consulting, which um, I always look at as the um, beginning of anything that you want to do. But can you kind of give us a little bit of um, insight as to how you maneuvered through the world to where you are today? It wasn't, I'm sure, a straight, direct path. It was definitely not a straight, direct path. I was a nerd and probably still am a nerd. <laughs> so in the when I was 15 years old, uh, uh, a father of one of my fellow pupils um, in the UK donated a bunch of computers to us. And uh, they, he worked for this company called Pi Electronics, which is sadly defunct. Mm. And um, they had upgraded their computers. So we got a bunch of computers that had a whole 8K of memory in them, <laughs> um, a black and green screen, and between five computers, one disk drive, floppy disk drive. <laughs> and I was planning to be a journalist. That was my passion growing up. Uh, but as soon as I saw the computer, I fell in love with the computer. That world, the imagination, the ability to create something right there and then was just captivated me. And so that set my path going. So I became a nerd. I um, studied computer science. I went to work for IBM and then eventually IBM Consulting and then eventually Booz Allen um, doing consulting there and loved it all until, again, I came across this world of venture venture capital. So I, I, you know, I, I, I'm a tech person. I went to business school in France. And the two things I knew for sure were that I would never work in finance and I would never live in the US. Otherwise, I would have gone to a US school and tried to do that. <laughs> so, you know, zero out of two in terms of my ability to predict the future. So it was quite a weird way of ending up here. And the one thing that's very interesting is that um, most VCs hate consultants. Um, they find them to be overly analytical. They never make decisions. We call it analysis paralysis because there's too many options out there. And so they don't really like working with them. And they certainly don't like hiring them as uh, VCs. So 
getting from being a consultant to becoming a VC was not an easy path because there was a lot of resistance, shall we say. So t- tell me tell me a little bit more about um, your transition to the U.S. and um, what were the things that were difficult, funny, um, unexpected about operating in a new culture that technically speaks the same language but really doesn't? Well, I mean, I think like any any child growing up in the UK, um, you know, as I did, a lot of TV was from America. And so I felt very assured and confident of my understanding of the United States because I had watched Dallas. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that that's how the world must be. Um, I watched Hawaii Five-0. I watched all these, you know, um, Kojak was one of my favorites. I'm dating myself, obviously. Um, and so I thought I knew everything about it. Uh, my father was a travel agent at that time, and he did business with some folks in New York. And one summer, he took me with him to New York. And, um, you know, I'm hoping my mother's not listening to this podcast because my dad essentially left me alone during the day to just wander around New York City. In New York. And this, is, this is when New York City was not quite the Disneyland it is today. Um, and uh, so I was wandering around in Central Park and on the subway and just going hanging out in, in places I shouldn't have been, like Times Square, which, again, was not the place it is today. Um, and I fell in love with it. It was just incredible because everybody asked, you know, wanted me to have a nice day. And in the UK, I don't think anybody had ever told me to have a nice day. And so I was just like super impressed with how nice these people were. <laughs> and my dad told me, he said, look, that they just say that. They don't really care whether you have a nice day or not. But I was captivated. And when I came back to live in the US, I came to New York because that was the dream. And I had this understanding that the entire United States was like New York open 24-7, very urban, full of people from all over the world. And so got quite the rude awakening when I started traveling in the US and discovered that it was very different from what I thought. So yes, I mean, I think I went in with all these huge preconceptions about how the world would be. Um, I was definitely seduced by the sort of surface level of how Americans interact with other people. Um, But, you know, uh, despite that not being quite correct, it still has been an incredible thing to be here and uh, and still enjoying it. So so as a, um, well, once an entrepreneur or a leader of a startup, also an investor, um, being here in the hotbed of startups and investment, one could say Silicon Valley, Um, you compare and contrast with doing the same kinds of jobs in the UK. Yeah. Um, And I would actually say that there are differences between how the UK works, but also how the East Coast of the US works and the West Coast works. Um, So an example I would give is that when I was working for IBM, um, I had the occasion to come out here to San Jose uh, to work um, alongside some of the people in one of the laboratories that they have here. And they had, I don't know if they still do, but they had two or three uh, in this area. And one of the things I was doing was working on a new type of uh, programming language and combining that with databases that we use to store information. And I started calling up people here in the Bay Area and asking them if they could share their research, talk about the things that they were doing. And it was very interesting in that everybody said yes. Everybody said yes. 
Um, nobody wanted to hide what they had done. Nobody felt that by telling me about what they were up to, they would be losing anything. In fact, they, they were eager to share the information. And I would contrast that with how the UK worked and how the East Coast of uh, the US worked, where you know people are much more cagey because they believe that by telling you something, they might be enabling you to compete with them. Where So you know, translating that into the world of venture, um, if you think about the way that venture happens on the West Coast, the way it happens is that everybody's maximizing for the upside. Everybody wants to say, let's build terms that if this thing is super successful, I'm going to make a lot of money out of it. The East Coast is minimizing the downside. If these things go badly, then I have to make sure that I escape as well as I possibly can. So there's just a fundamental difference between the way that people approach things. And the UK is much closer to the way that the New Yorkers might work than it is the the West Coast. So that was the first thing that struck me was the sort of openness on the West Mm -hmm. Coast. And I think it's born of a little bit of, you know, confidence, perhaps even arrogance to say, well, even if I share all this information with you, I'm moving on to the next thing. I'm going to be doing more interesting things. So I'm happy to share this with you because I'll already be in the next place. Um, and so that That's was interesting. That, I think that really that really suited me. And you know, um, you know the UK um, is very interesting because you know it's a relatively small country that had a huge influence around the world. Um, but the UK is kind of specialized in things like um, communications, media, um, finance, um, uh, consulting, and so on. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's a great strength to have. But if you look at what's happening out here, um, it's about building mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. That something that you're building may not be particularly um, you know, great for the world. It may not be impactful in a positive way, but still people are trying to build. Yeah. And uh, we saw that recently with Mark Andreessen's uh, pronouncement about, you know, now it's time to build, right? Um, which is a little, probably a little bit um, self-serving, but you know, there we go. Um, and uh, I think that was what was interesting to me about running a business in London, which I did. I did a startup there versus here. The um, ability or the belief in what you could do. Uh, is just 10x here what it is in Europe or what it was. I think things have changed. How about language? Language is one of those things that, um, you know, we we think casually, oh, we speak English, they speak English in the UK, with a, granted a kind of a funny little accent that we like, but, uh, <laughs> but there's much more to communication than just the language you use. Tell us a little bit about any of your experiences as you learned those differences? Yeah, um, I think you're right. Same words, different meaning. So, you know, when you table something in the UK, it means something different from when you table something in the US. A moot point is a different thing in both countries as well. So there is um, possibility for confusion, but it's actually more than that. It's, um, you know, in, in Britain, we we have a sort of, brand of self-deprecating humor that we like to bandy around. Um, and uh, everybody gets that. Um, it doesn't work well in the US because people take you literally. So if you say, well, it was nothing, they're like, oh, it was nothing. Whereas what you meant was actually, I'm just being modest about my achievements. Um, and so I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs pitching, um, uh, and maybe Belen has a, a, something to chime in there, but mm. pitching here in the US and being misunderstood about what it is they're doing. Yeah. 
another thing that I've seen um, is that uh, we are very good here at naming things in a very um, you know, uh, a, a way that is really sort of uh, appropriate and sticks in your mind. I'll give you an example, not related to entrepreneurship, but recently we've been having a lot of rain in California. And it turns out that this rain is due to moisture being picked up in the Pacific around Hawaii and carried in these big streams and then dumping over here before it hits the mountains. And the meteorologists um, here have named this an atmospheric river, which is just a really super name. I mean, it really is, you know, it really scares sort of, you, you know, uh, sparks the imagination, <laughs> scares you. But, but, you know, this concept of being able to name something and make it stick in your mind is something that Americans are very good at. And I think we're less good at in the UK. We're a bit more about, you know, pragmatically what this is. And what I've seen happen back to entrepreneurs is that, you know, they are sort of very pragmatic about what they're doing and the americans are not getting it because they they're looking for hyperbole they're looking for exaggeration show me how you can conquer the world yeah. whereas you know the, the europeans and the brits as well it's like kind of like well no this is this is what i realistically think i could achieve and that's people need to be sold on the vision not just on the reality of what's happening here. you know that's kind of an interesting point looking at it from the other way do you think that on the part of British or European investors, that they immediately discount, you know, 50% of what an American entrepreneur is going to tell them because of that concept you're actually talking about. I, I don't think that they do. I think that they get um, impressed by the the vision, the grand the grand vision of this thing. So they may rationally know that probably a lot of this stuff is not really quite there yet, um, but they're still caught up with the story. Um, you know, a lot of how we try to hack. Um, investment and hack entrepreneurship, you know, is, is you're looking for ways to sort of bring people into the tent. And uh, this concept of building a story is a really powerful way of doing that because we as humans love stories. We think about the world in mm -hmm. stories. And so mm -hmm. I think what's been what the Americans have done and the entrepreneurs in the US have done very well is to be able to build those stories. So even though I imagine there is a level of skepticism amongst Europeans, they're probably still in part, unwillingly perhaps, um, carried away by by the by the narrative and so i think it i think the american entrepreneurs do well in europe because of this mm. and because also i think there is a belief that in the u.s people are executing on these ideas more quickly and more aggressively than they might be in mm -hmm. europe um and you know that may or may not be true but you know that belief is there and so there's a there's a positive nature to that yeah i also see a lot of european startups have americans as their head of marketing <laughs> uh, which i yeah. think is another yeah. indication that you know actually yes you know, they're good at building that story um and you know i would say something like microsoft frankly when they started coming out with their operating systems they weren't terribly good at the start but they built the story and they kept on people kept on getting people to buy and buy until about version 3.11 it actually was good. Mm -hmm. Windows mm -hmm. you know, really worked. Um, but uh, they managed to sort of, again, hack the system by pulling people along with a product that wasn't as good um, until and, and having them as customers until it was good. If you're selling to a US company, it's, it's so much better to have an American voice, uh, an American person doing it. Um, however, if you're selling a technical product and you're, you're actually... 
consulting or let's say you're, you're demoing the product or, or you're the, the subject matter expert, it's actually quite useful to have a British accent because there's a, there's a sense of authority there. <laughs> do, do you, did you find the same thing? I do find the same things. And sometimes I'm frustrated because people say, well, you know, you're saying it so nicely. You could be saying nonsense and we'd still be, you know, uh, happy to hear it. So um, I'm getting, yes, but yes, the British accent does have a positive um, uh, feeling to it here in the US, despite all the crazy things we've been doing in our politics over the last few years, um, that still is the case. And so, yes, I think that um, that is very helpful. Um, And uh, it does come across exactly as you said, um, as kind of authoritative um, and confident, um, and dare I say, posh. Um, so, uh, although most Americans would imagine a British accent to be somewhere between, a cross between Billy Idol and the Queen. And so somewhere in between is right, probably where we sit. Yeah, the Raj, you, you know, you and I first met when you were heading up a startup. And um, you played that role and moved that forward, and you were totally enmeshed in that world. Now you are in a different world. You know, you're on the other side of the table, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be a hard question to answer. Which is which is more difficult? Not a hard question to answer, Shelley. Um, definitely, being an entrepreneur is way harder. Okay. Way harder. The way I the way I think about it is this concept of agent and principal. So um, you know. If you are running a startup, you are a principal, you are intimately involved in trying to make something successful. It is up to you to make the really hard decisions and the trade-offs that you need to make in order for your business to grow and thrive. When you are an agent, you're involved in the success of a company, but you are not the day-to-day person. And so you can dispense advice and wisdom and walk away. Mm-hmm. And because as venture capitalists, we take a portfolio approach, we want to have a diversity of bets that we make in any particular space. And the reason we do that is that if one fails, our overall portfolio can still be successful. If you're an entrepreneur, you really don't have that option. You are betting on being successful. And if it doesn't work, you're out of a job. And so I would say that it's definitely harder to be an entrepreneur because you've got so many constraints to deal with. um, And it is ultimately on you. As a VC, yes, you've got to find great companies. But honestly, the perfect company for me to invest in is one where they don't need my money, they don't need my expertise, and they don't need my time. But nevertheless, I've given them their money and they go and execute wonderfully, right? That's my dream. But that reality is quite hard to find. So definitely harder to be an entrepreneur, um, in my opinion. Um, I think being a VC is a, is a privilege. It's a luxury. I think we, you know, the thing I love about the VC world is the interaction with the entrepreneurs, the passion, the motivation, the vision. I think it's all, you know, that's incredible that they want to change the world and they're trying to do it. Um, and so, yes, it's absolutely a luxury to be a VC compared to being an entrepreneur, in my view. So having been an entrepreneur, so you can say, I've been there, I've done it, I've experienced the pluses, the minuses, you know, the buck stops here or the pound stops here. So has that changed how you look at uh, opportunities that are now presented to you as a VC? Did that modify your thinking? 
Yes, it did. Um, so when I started one of my companies, the um, the second one, um, I kept it as a stealth company initially. And that was un- I was under the mistaken belief that the idea that we had was important. And, you know, back to my example of people being sharing and open here on the West Coast, it turns out that's not really the case. Everybody has many ideas all the time. What is important is your ability to execute against the idea. Um, so innovation is nothing if you're not able to bring the product to market. Mm, mm. And so um, I think that, you know, it's what what has sort of opened my eyes having been through that experience is that, yes, it's important that you have a great idea and that you're trying to do something interesting. But what's most important is that you have the capacity to actually execute against the idea. So um, great to have good ideas. But now when I think about what I want to invest in, I'm really looking at the team and I'm saying to myself, do I believe that these people have the ability to execute? Mm -hmm. And if something goes wrong, do they have the flexibility to be able to change, to pivot, to do something else um, and still be successful? And ultimately, that's what you're backing. You're backing the people Mm -hmm. to be able to go out and do the right Mm -hmm. thing. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, before that experience, I would say that I didn't really understand that I was looking for the great idea. Um, but you know, the great idea is worth nothing if you can't deliver on it. There'll be many people listening and watching this podcast now that are probably looking for fundraising. What are some of the mistakes that people make? I think the first thing that people first mistake that people make is that they put in too much detail into their initial presentation to to the people they're looking to get funding yes. from. <laughs> um, you know, it's a hard truth, but I'll say it. We're not interested. Right. We're not interested in the detail of the of the intricacies of how you made something work. Not yet. Anyway. Right. What we're interested in understanding is the is the vision, the picture. And, you know, I think we as entrepreneurs, we fall in love with this very smart thing that we're doing that is going to change the world. But actually what your you know, back to my earlier point, your your funders need to hear the story, they need to understand why this is a good idea. And so it needs to be very crisp and relatively high level. So, you know, when I see people, when people send me a presentation, a deck of, you know, 50 pages, it's immediately not a good thing because I'm just not going to spend all the time to read all the detail. I probably don't even understand a lot of the detail. I need to see 10 pages, right? This is the problem, you know, this is why we can solve it. This is why the time is right. Here's the result if we do solve it in terms of dollars and cents. How does this make a difference to the world? This is the level that you want to interact at initially to get people interested. Then over time, you know, the details come next. Another thing that I see, which is um, you know, under, understandable but difficult um, to change, is that um, just in the same way as it's very hard to change somebody's politics by having a discussion with them about it, it is also very hard to change people's minds when they've come to an opinion about something. And unfortunately, in the world of venture capital, you know, myself and my colleagues, we are often consider ourselves to be experts about everything. So five minutes into the presentation you're making to me, I'm already an expert. And now clearly I'm being facetious. I'm not, but I probably think I am. And so very difficult to change people's minds about stuff. And so what you need to do is move forward 
looking for those signals of agreement, of understanding, and tailor your pitch accordingly. Um, a lot of people have this, uh, you know, this feeling that they just have to kind of get through the presentation. Mm. But if you can see that your audience has questions, if they're not sure, you should be addressing those issues. You should be bringing them along with you rather than just trying to run through this presentation and hope at the end you'll change their mind about something because generally speaking, you can't. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing I would say is, especially around the financials, is, you know, you need to be able to back up your financials. So first of all, if you're a seed stage company and you're putting in five-year projections, that's kind of a mistake because <laughs> nobody has any idea, including you, about how this business is going to go. So don't put in numbers to make it look like it's a great thing when you can't back those numbers up. I don't know what your revenues are going to be in five years' time, and neither do you. And there are too many variables for us to understand that. What we need to understand is if you get it right, what is the opportunity, right? How big is the opportunity? If you're going to be the best buggy whip manufacturer ever, wonderful, there probably isn't a big opportunity for that. If, on the other hand, you have you know something that's better than chat GPT-4 or GPT-4, then there may be a big opportunity for that. So we need to know those things. We don't need to know how much your cost of sales would be in 2029. With the financials, do, do, you, do, you, do you look for a profit? Um, mostly not. If it's, if we're investing very early stage, we don't necessarily look for a profit. We look to understand how do you generate value. So in any, in any organization, you know, you've got something you're doing, which you believe people will pay for. And the question is, will the value that you're generating be paid for to you or will it go somewhere else? So an example would be if you're building a software platform, um, you know, people will buy that platform because they want to do something with the platform. Over time, there may be other things that connect into the platform that are perhaps more valuable than the platform itself. So who will make money out of all of this? Will it be you as the platform or will it be those people who use your platform to do something else? And that's something that entrepreneurs don't always um, focus on, which is, yes, you're creating value, but are you also capturing the value? So if you can demonstrate that you're capturing the value in the value chain, it isn't necessary to say, I'm going to be profitable in three years or five years. Um, because that's a hard one. But if you're generating value and you're capturing value, that's the key. Then the business is interesting to a venture capitalist. And I'm not saying, I mean, there are plenty of businesses that will be perfectly fine with never taking a dime of venture capital. But if for our use case, that's what we need to see is your, your ability to capture the value that's been generated. Interesting. So, so how do venture capitalists make mistakes or what are the mistakes that they make? Because everybody makes mistakes. You mentioned the term arrogance, which rings true. Uh, but but what, a, what, a, what goes wrong in the VC world? I think a lot of things. I mean, I think the probably the biggest mistake that we make is that we are not diverse enough in our um, sourcing of great potential startups. Um, so we tend to, you know, because um, there are fewer VCs in the United States than there are professional athletes, there just aren't that many. And so what you find is that pretty much every VC will receive a lot of pitches, a lot of potential you know, uh, entrepreneurs who want to get investment. And 
the way that we typically deal with this sort of fire hose of, of pitches is to ignore most of them. And we only focus on the ones where we know that person or somebody that we know has introduced us, a warm intro, so-called. Um, and that's a huge mistake because um, what you're doing is you're self-selecting out all of the great ideas that come from areas that you've never thought about before, from people who understand issues and problems that you have no idea exist. And so by doing that, that's probably the biggest mistake that we make is that we we self-select out a lot of the great ideas out there because we just don't have a connection to them um, in the name of efficiency, in the name of being able to, to work. Another another thing that we um, that we uh, also make a mistake around is the belief that if I wouldn't want to do this thing, then there isn't a market for it. Mm. So if you come to me with a great idea, let's say you say, you know, I'm going to have a platform and I'm going to put videos that last 30 seconds on this platform. And they're going to be videos about people creating stuff or doing a funny dance or <laughs> or a cat. I'm like. I would never be interested in that. This is never going to be a good idea. That's a mistake because it turns out there are billions of people who are very interested in this idea and you can make a lot of money. And so as a VC, you need to be able to think not about yourself as the customer, but about the theoretical customer. And it's a very human mistake to make. You know, would I like it? Would I do it? Right. Um, this is one of the reasons, by the way, why there isn't enough investment going into products targeted at women, because most VCs are men. And so they don't <laughs> see the value of those products. Um, likewise, for diverse communities and people of color, again, don't have very many of those don't get very many ideas that get funded to go address those issues. And so, you know, that's another huge mistake that we make. You know, it's interesting because I've spent a number of years trying to get U.S. people interested in investment overseas. Now, I'm talking about angels, not VCs at this point. Um, because for many years, as you know, I was looking at startups in the UK, in France, in other places in Europe. And I remember a US person telling me at one time, well, Shelley, why would we look overseas? We have everything we need here. And I, I didn't agree with that. I felt like the concept of looking internationally is much stronger than just you know, within within one country. Do you see any of that in the U.S.? I mean, have you run into that idea that it's got to be U.S. only? Um, yes, I have seen that. I think actually in many ways it's even worse than that. So in the venture world, it's really sort of bi-coastal. Mm. So I'm only looking for startups in San Francisco or Seattle or Los Angeles or New York or Boston. And so there's a lot of interesting movement now. Um, I think they call it the rise of the rest, <laughs> where people are looking to invest in the you know, in the Midwest, in the, the heartland of the U.S. And um, money is flowing into those areas. And the, start, the entrepreneurs there who have no connection with the people on the coast are finally able to get some funding for their great ideas. So, you know, the... The, to step back, mm -hmm. the U.S. is very big. It's you know 330 million people. It's a huge country and it has a great economic power. And so you can understand why people might say, well, if I focus here, I'll, I can be successful without ever having to go abroad. But I do agree with your point. So, you know, when I was growing up, as I mentioned, my dad was a travel agent. And I think that if I was king for a day, 
that's what I would make everybody do. I'd make everybody travel because I think that if they traveled and they spent some time with other people in other cultures, you know, it's a truism, but they would realize they're just humans like the rest mm-hmm. of us. They do things in slightly different mm-hmm. ways, but they have the same motivations, same desires as we do. And it's really, you know, it's really hard to sort of hate somebody or devalue somebody when you've spent some time with them and realize they're just people, Absolutely. good and bad, like the rest of us. Right. And so I would definitely mandate that. Um, but I do, I do understand why, why people in the US are sort of so focused on, on this country because it's so large and the opportunity is so large. Yeah. But I think it would be awesome for us all to understand each other better. Raj, look, thank you very, very much indeed for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you both. Been a pleasure. Well, Shelley, that was a really interesting conversation with Raj. I, I have to say, I really enjoyed that. What were your impressions? What were your key takeaways? Yeah, you know, I agree with you. That was really an interesting, informative, and fun conversation. I guess what I found really interesting, and it hit home to me, was uh, when he talked about cultural differences. And, um, you know, the idea that if you're in, in Great Britain with British accent and you say, oh, it was nothing, you're really being modest. Uh, but if an American is listening to that, they may say, oh, yeah, it was really nothing. You know, that kind of very subtle miscommunication can absolutely be key in certain situations. So I, I found it interesting to listen to his observations in that area. One of the ones that stood out to me was about telling the story. And I think he was saying that really for founders who are pitching for funding need to tell the story, the story of their journey and the story of what they are trying to do with their business and to paint a picture of what the story could look like in the future. And that, I think, will be a very exciting way for any founder to to address the whole issue of fundraising, which I know I found quite difficult. But I think that was a really interesting and helpful advice there. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on social media at Startup Sensations. And we'll see you soon. Bye.